Welcome to the Small Business Surgeon Podcast, the show where we dissect the businesses of top producers, examine their growth strategies, and share with you the bare bones of their success. I am your host, Samuel Smith, and I'm glad you're here. Let's operate. Hey guys, what's up? Welcome to this week's episode of the Small Business Surgeon Podcast. And guys, I am very, very pleased to bring you today's guest. He's in a different time zone, joining us all the way from the Philippines. Uh, today's guest, he's got over 20 years in business experience. He is a author of the best-selling book, Inside Outsourcing, and the CEO of Outsource Accelerator. That's the world's first outsourcing marketplace that helps businesses explore, build, and uh, operate offshore teams. Please welcome to the show, Derek Gallimore. Hi, how are you doing? Thank you so much. Derek, thank you for coming on, man. I've been looking forward to this ever since I saw it come across my calendar because you're a you're an expert in outsourcing. Is that right? Yeah, I happen to be. Yeah, after you know about over a decade, twelve years now in the industry, um, I've picked up you know a lot of insight into the industry. Uh, so yeah, yeah. Well, tell, to tell us a little bit first before we get started like a thousand foot overview of, of who you are and, and where you came from and then uh, I want to dig into a little bit about your business experience as we get going in the show so so Derek who are you mate yeah I'm I'm an entrepreneur through and through I have been in business all of my life uh, this business which is Outsource Accelerator is my third business I started in very early very young in property development. Um, my next business was in hotels, hospitality. Oh, wow. And then my third business is this marketplace. Um, it's been a great ride. It's been a brutal ride. Like I've, I've sort of felt the full highs and lows of the entrepreneurial roller coaster. Um, <laughs> but, you know, there's, there's no alternative for me. I've never really, you know, I'm that typical sort of entrepreneurial, uh, I suppose, avatar. Like I never really gelled that well with education. Uh, I prefer doing my own thing. Right. Uh, and yeah, it's been an incredible journey. Uh, you know, interestingly, um, throughout you're learning the entire time, you know, uh, this right. is my third business, but really to me, it is just, you know, it's one business, the whole thing just carries on. Uh, and there's a lot of learnings over, over that journey. Well, Derek, much, much to my pleasant surprise, we have quite a few younger listeners on the show in, uh, in their twenties and you know, what, what were you like as a young man? What were you like in high school, coming out of high school and, and, and getting started in business? You said you were uh, a little bit uh, against education at, at school. How did that work out for you? Yeah, I suppose, look, I was just a bit of a misfit in the truest sense of the word. Like, I just didn't feel that I fit in with any of the, any of the groups, any of the tribes within school. I was reasonably capable in terms of academics, but it really didn't interest me. Right. I really wasn't into sports. You know, I was a skinny sort of white kid with no tan. And, you know, it was so it was all just a little bit awkward. And um, but I really, really, really gelled with the concept of entrepreneurship. And I suppose, you know, if you go deep into the psychology, it's really being able to control your outcome. Like I felt in school, you never had control of your outcome and, until you were you know, whatever, 18, 21, you right, still right. actually didn't have control of any of your journey or outcome or destination. You were just in this machine. Um, so I sort of really, really was excited about becoming an adult. Right, and I right. never really enjoyed my youth because of that sort of constrained uh, reality, I suppose. And then when I sort of 
got that autonomy, it, it was incredible. It was, it really gelled with me. And, you know, I, I believe that's when I really sort of took off and excelled was yeah. when I got that autonomy. Um, yeah. I can, I can still remember the first time that it, that it dawned on me and it opened my eyes that I didn't have a bully. I didn't have a, a parent telling me what to do. I didn't have a high school head of school telling me what to do. I didn't have a boss telling me what to do. And it was like this this massive awakening of like, oh my God, like it's all on me. This is great. I can do whatever I want, but I get to pay the price for that. For so, sure. And there's upsides and downsides. Like it's, oh, it's yeah. lonely <laughs> as well and it's hard and you know, you've know you got to make stuff work. And when your back's up against the wall, it, it's all on you. So there's pros and cons to it, but I, I wouldn't have it any different. I, I'm the same way. Pros, cons, but not any different. So so what was your first attempt at a business starting out? Did you deliver papers in high school, any of that kind of thing? Or did you just uh, you just come out and try to start something as you uh, as you turned 18 or, or 21, as it may be? Yeah, I was always, uh, I always had jobs from young, you know, um, mm -hmm. I had a good sort of middle class upbringing, but, but no wealth per se. Right. Uh, and I worked, I think, from 14 or 15 years old in the local supermarket. And then I had part time jobs. I became I became really interested in the gym when I was about 17. Mm -hmm. I actually became a national bodybuilding champion, ironically, as a bit of a sort you, of you left that journey. off your resume. Damn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I tend not to mention it. But um, but I became then a personal trainer at about 18, which was uh, the youngest personal trainer in, in this very well known um, gym brand at the time. Mm -hmm. And that taught me a lot as well about entrepreneurship, because as a personal trainer, you are a solopreneur, you know, your, right, your own right. business. And if you don't get the clients, and then very quickly, I learned about the economics of personal training, I, I learned that, you know, it's not really scalable, you're really just selling your time. And even though the sort of the hourly rate is quite high, unless you scale that you're always limited. So I sort of, that was an interesting kind of inflection point for me, that you kind of have to choose your path carefully. Oh, um, yeah. You know, all businesses are not alike. So before you fully commit to something, ensure that it's a, a good business with easy upside or easier upside. That, that's so often overlooked. Um, you know, I, I tell people to follow their passions, and I'm sure a lot of people uh, receive that same advice. But also in following your passions, make sure it's something that you can actually make a living you know, doing. And um, as you said, personal training back then wasn't scalable. It wasn't something you could replicate over and over. Now with the internet, you see a lot more of these online guys doing it. But uh, back then, if you, you you only had so many hours in the day, that's all you could do. So how easy or how difficult did you find it being a personal trainer and selling the sessions that it took to, to pay your bills? Really hard, actually, really hard. And, you know, it, it was my first formative kind of experience of doing business and having to be, you know, I had a fairly low self-esteem, I suppose, and I was an introvert. And I realized that selling is really hard. But then also as a personal trainer, you, you have to sell yourself. Mm -hmm. And I think so personal trainers sort of, you naturally have to be quite extroverted, and you are the brand. And so it didn't really gel with me so well but also you know maybe you know as an excuse maybe i was young and i wasn't really ready to double in on this um so you know that that never really turned out to become much and also i think because of my sort of 
you know, I ended up then moving from Sydney to, sorry, from New Zealand to Sydney, Australia. Mm -hmm. And I kind of got out of the gym scene, which actually looking back was um, fantastic because I was getting a little bit in a rut of that tribe, that identity. And, you know, you became then a big fish in a small pond. Right. And it was good to have that, you know, and I was only 18, 19, but I was at risk of getting stuck into a sort of identity that maybe wasn't um, the best long term. So uh, uh, changing city uh, helped a lot with that, actually. What was it like changing countries at 19 years old, moving to from, from New Zealand to Australia? Because a lot of people don't realize that's an entirely different country. Uh, and there's quite a distance between New Zealand and Sydney. So what was it like mm. as a 19-year-old moving out on your own? Yeah, honestly, it was brutal. Like, it was brutal. Um, I have now subsequently moved a lot, you know, and I was actually born in the UK, raised in New Zealand. So, again, I didn't feel like a New Zealander in New Zealand. So there's always that sort of uh, identity thing. But I was really homesick, you know. I I had a great town. I had a great set of friends in my hometown. uh, And I left all of that behind and I had no identity. Sydney's also... Uh, a little bit notorious for it's being it's quite clicky it doesn't have a big expat community so it's harder to make uh, local friends because they're already uh, into right. their sort of scene so it, it was brutal for the first two years I was quite homesick you know it's like whatever 1920 but again I, I think that that the whole sort of stoic thing of the obstacle is the way it, it, it becomes very powerful once you open overcome that you know it's easy to go home it's easy to go back to your old group of friends but then you haven't grown and yeah. you haven't strengthened and it's it's harder to go the hard path but then often you're a lot better for it and i i certainly reflect on that now as being a very positive step absolutely so did you did you find yourself changing friend groups a lot as a young man as you evolved because you know a, lo- a lot of guys are, are scared to leave their friends behind yeah absolutely absolutely and i am naturally a bit nomadic i think and mm-hmm. so i've lived in numerous countries and seen a huge amount of the world have a huge number of friends but because i keep moving mm-hmm. then you know you're not with the same set of school friends since right birth. right and so you have a lot of acquaintances but then you don't have those strong strong bonds and there's pros and cons for that you know um i have a lot of acquaintances spread right across the world mm-hmm. um but you know for example i've been in the philippines now about eight nine years and as you as you become older, you don't make such strong bonds with people. And then also, you know, at a certain age, people start splitting off and having families. So the nature of it changes. Um, But again, there's there's pros and cons to that. And I certainly wouldn't have it any other way. Absolutely. Yeah. As like, as you you grow, you tend to attract uh, people that are are going along that same journey with you and tend to shed the ones that don't want to don't want to move along. So I want to ask now what it was like and how you managed to get a, a foot into uh, into commercial real estate because that's a fairly kind of closed off world, isn't it? Um, yeah, it was just residential, just residential real estate. Oh, it's um, but I, I managed to scale. Yeah, so first of all, in, when I got to London, I was then twenty one or something, mm-hmm. uh, and I had been backpacking around South America for one year. Oh, wow. I spent every cent that I had made. Uh, <laughs> I came to London um, and had no money, no, 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 nothing. 
Uh, and then within about 12 months, there was a property boom and I saw the value of, uh, you know, this property gig. And so I managed to save up money and buy my first property, which was about a quarter of a million pounds, about $300,000 mm-hmm. uh, a year after my backpacking trip, you know, across South America. Um, wow. And then what ensued there after in about the next sort of nine, 10 years, I bought about another sort of 40 um, apartments, you know, 40 houses or apartments. Yeah. Um, some of them I renovated and flipped and some of them I uh, just kept and retained. Uh, so yeah, that was, that was a really interesting journey. You know, uh, property development is not the sort of typical entrepreneurial gig. It takes a lot of capital. It's completely different to sort of running a business, but I, I sort of feel that that was my first uh, business experience, you know, first how, real business experience. How did you figure that out as a 21 year old um, without as much access to information as, as we have these days? How, how did you even manage to start going about buying a, a quarter million dollar house? Sorry, a quarter million pound house at, at 21. How did you figure that out? Yeah, it was a lot of determination. It was a lot of feeling around in the dark. And you're absolutely right. You know, this was 22 years ago or whatever. Mm-hmm. And there was not really the internet. And, you know, today you can buy courses, you can join masterminds, all dedicated towards building a property development portfolio, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was really me feeling around. I applied for mortgages. I got laughed at <laughs> you know i got sort of refused about sort of 10 times in a row and right. then eventually one person one broker managed to get me a mortgage and you know it was 90 percent of uh, the property value oh wow and i got a loan for the vast majority of that i managed to save up about you know five percent mm-hmm. uh the taxes were relatively low and then I had to, yeah, I, so I just, just, just scraped into that. But, you know, I was then at the tail end of the boom and I, I, I certainly didn't catch the full boom, but with the tail end, you know, within about six months, the property prices had gone up mm-hmm. and I could then refinance and then I could buy, I actually bought the property um, three doors down. Oh, wow. Uh, and then, you know, I ended up converting, they were quite big old houses and I converted mm-hmm. them into two apartments each. Uh, so then I had four apartments and then I refinanced and then I sort of it, you know, snowballed from there. And how did you learn that? Was it just from, from good old books or did you have a mentor or? Yeah, no, it was, you know, there was, it was kind of, it was out there, but there was no mentorship there was no easy groups you know and i was a young kid i i felt again quite alone but not you know not in any sort of psychological sense but you know maybe the older guys maybe in the 40s and 50s that have been around um they would have friends that they but i was just sort of bumbling along and you know i didn't know anything about the taxes or the different types of mortgages available or you know what's referred to as buy to let mortgages investment mortgages i had no idea it was just really the determination and you and, you figure stuff out. You can figure it out. Yeah. That's um, that's but, exactly you know. that's exactly what I wanted to underline. The fact that you as a 21, 22, 23 year old kid in a foreign country still had it in his mind that he was going to own some property. And it was the mindset and the determination that enabled you to figure it out. 
And I want the guys listening to know that with the right mindset and determination, it's actually a little bit easier these days to, to get into investment properties. Super. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah you can do it. Yeah. So many, many travels, many travels. What did you do after you left London? And uh, you know, how did you go from there uh, to, to where you are today? Yeah, so, well, I mean, I'll, I'll zoom forward because it's probably not the best entertainment, but basically <laughs> in 2008, there was a, the financial crisis. And, and so mm -hmm. it actually, I, you know, all the banks collapsed. And actually the banks that had my, my mortgages, they actually went out of business. And then, so they sold my mortgage and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. So it became very difficult to do property development. I, all of my properties were safe. I wasn't actually, I didn't lose value of money from that which is which is quite amazing yeah um, but it meant that i could no longer do this sort of you know the the times of easy mortgages were gone so i had to find something else from that i went into service departments uh, which is pretty much the airbnb model i went right. in a 2009 which actually is when airbnb started and so it was about three or four years before airbnb was even a known thing and certainly in london um, but we, I then built a, a you know, a bootstrap to $20 million uh, business with about 250 central London properties. Those were leased instead of, you know, I didn't buy those ones. So um, it was like, like a, a lease arbitrage where you provided furnished apartments for people? That's yeah, correct. Genius. Just, just very much like the Airbnb model uh -huh. now, you know, where there's, there's like sort of people with 10, 50 or 100 or whatever, 200 properties. Um, but we were pretty much pre-Airbnb. We right. actually then started using Booking.com and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, so, you know, I built that. You know, ironically, the, the thing that led me into the Philippines was very quickly I realized that, um, you know, with uh, hotels, hospitality, you need 24-7 sales and customer service because they're, they're booking from different time zones and they're staying in your hotels yeah, overnight. Yeah. So it was too expensive to do in London. So I got an offshore team in the Philippines, uh, you know, and without knowing that that's what started this journey that I'm on today. Um, so I built that team up. They started doing my basic customer service. And then very quickly, I realized there was capability in the Philippines. And I um, then built all of the functionalities of the business in the Philippines, whether it was web dev or sales or marketing or HR or accounts or, uh, you know, customer service sales, um, all of the logistics for the London properties were done from the Philippines. And then by 2014, I was actually living in Sydney, commuting back to London for this, for this business, mm -hmm. and then commuting also to Manila for the Manila office. And then I just decided to um, go to Manila, stay in Manila for a while. And I've, I've been here since. Man, it's something I've always wanted to check out. Is is it true that the, the most commonly spoken language in Manila is English? Super. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, unlike any other foreign country, everything is in English here, like all the street signs, all the billboards, all the, you know, most of the TV, all the newspapers, um, you know, even the sort of uneducated laborers and taxi drivers can speak English. Very, very English. Uh, yeah, so... Uh, culture it makes it an ideal hub for what you for what you're doing so as you first started to get into outsourcing 
it was it was a reasonably new concept um, that now we've got a, a global economy and we've got easy access to the internet. So, what were some of the challenges you experienced right in the beginning when you first started dealing with uh, foreign outsourcers? Yeah, look, it was when I started in two thousand eleven. I I had a business friend and he said, oh, you should check out the Philippines." You know, um, and to me, it was the weirdest, most foreign concept. You know, um, I was always. I, at least I was more international than most. I traveled around a lot. I was running my London business from Australia. So I sort of understand, understood how it could work. It wasn't quite so foreign to me, but still going to the Philippines was a freaky concept and entrusting your business, your operations um, to someone so foreign was, was kind of freaky. And then also, you know, I learned that there are these things called outsourcing firms or BPOs and that, you know, through a sort of co-parenting relationship, you have the contract with them and then they have the staff, the offices, and, you know, almost like a WeWork on steroids that, you know, that, that whole industry uh, is in the Philippines and it's thriving and it's helping businesses. Uh, so, you know, it, it was a really fascinating, interesting journey, um, but one that, you know, and most entrepreneurs do this as soon as they start outsourcing, mm -hmm. they're like, it's like, you know, <laughs> first sort of shot of crack or something. They're like, oh my God, this is life changing. You know, you cannot go back. And as soon as you realize the power and um, opportunity of it's not just outsourcing it's global employment uh, it's like this is a game changer and often what happens when entrepreneurs you know start using it they go wow this is so good <laughs> often they dump their existing company and they go i'm going all in on outsourcing you know i'm going to show the world this outsourcing and most entrepreneurs they dump their current company and then start an outsourcing firm or you know, something, something of the like, because it is such a powerful, powerful tool. No kidding. I did not know that. Um, mm -hmm. So let's, uh, let's move to, to current day now. Um, so uh, as a, as a small business owner that's listening to your podcast, if somebody wanted to come and, and hire an outsourcer, what are some things initially that outsourcers could be prescribed with doing? Uh, what what tasks do they generally start out with for small businesses? And what does the development of that outsourcer within the business, what does that generally look like? Yeah, so, you know, outsourcing is like employment. It's a massive umbrella term. And just like employment in the US, you've got, you know, full-timers, but you've also got contractors, you've got interns, you've got agencies, advisors, um, you know, part-time workers, students, you've got all of that within the umbrella of outsourcing as well. Oh, wow. So when you say yeah. what is outsourcing, it's actually a multitude of things. And it can also, um, you know, you can tailor it to what you need as a company. So it's not fair to say it's one thing, but the, just like in the US, it is fair to say the most common model of employment is full-time dedicated staff. Okay, because, mm -hmm. you know, the vast majority of America is full time employed. And so you have to assume that that is for a reason that that is kind of the best, worst option out there for businesses and employees. And that's pretty much the same with outsourcing. If you want, you know, a gig worker, a part timer, sure, that is available. And you can go to Upwork and stuff like that. But the best 
utilization, the best efficiency, that you know, the best output is if you find full-time dedicated staff. Mm-hmm. Um, you basically treat them identical to your standard staff in mm-hmm. your hometown. You don't really treat them any different. Uh, and then, you know, that's 99% of what you need to know about outsourcing. You're just basically hiring staff the same way that you would hire staff in your hometown. It's just that they are sitting in a different location, you know, and with that concept, you then have to be used to sort of digital interfaces instead of just leaning over your desk and talking to people. You then also have to adjust slightly to the different sort of cultural uh, norms. Um, You have to be quite good in terms of building processes and, you know, of course, people can't read your mind. So it's about getting that into processes um, and things like that. But again, a lot of those principles of how to run an offshore team effectively is identical to just management fundamentals or principles of, you know, delegation, process building, being nice to people um, <laughs> yeah, you have to do and that. stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah stuck, we're kind of stuck with being nice to people. I don't think that's an option, is it? Exactly. You know, and people often forget these things and then they're amazing to their people, you know, at home. And then they go, ah, yeah, but when I get offshore staff, I want a hundred people for one hour a week. I'm not going to tell them, I'm not going to give them any training, but I want them to generate 10 sales an hour. And it's like, dude, that's not going to work. You know, would that work in your hometown? You know, would you be able to find someone that would work one hour a week and, and also get the sales you want without training? It, it doesn't work. So you, you know, um, a lot of the things you, you have to look at from basic um, management and business principles. Right, right. So, like, starting out then, what would your first hire for a, uh, a company, a, a small business, what would you recommend them get first? Maybe a, a graphic designer, a virtual assistant, maybe someone to help with their scheduling. What do you see the most common way to, uh, to maybe ease somebody into using uh, a, an outsourced uh, worker, what would you say that would be? Yeah, um, so literally 99% of jobs across 99% of sectors can be done offshore. Um, if, if, if you or your staff can do it in front of a computer, then it can be done offshore. So there's really no limit. You know, it can be, you know, the common administrative assistant, um, but it can also be... Um, a data scientist, it can be a rocket scientist, it can be um, an architect, it can be an accountant, uh, it, you know, it can be, you know, doctors and nurses, depending on if they have the right digital interface, it can literally be every single role out there. Now, in terms of when you are building a business, mm-hmm. what you've got to be really careful of is, you know, when, you know, I've got 350 staff, and if I hire one bad staff, it's, 0.03% right. of my total staffing and it's not going to derail the boat or whatever it's going to derail whereas you know if you are starting out and you've got $5 left in your bank account and you scrape up $500 to get a VA then there's so much so much sort of need for that VA to hit the ball out of right, the park right. on the first day without any warm up period and also, as a as a first time entrepreneur, um, you know you don't really have the processes. You don't have a proven track record in terms of product and sales and all those things. So there's so much like 
this has to go a hundred percent correct. Um, otherwise, the whole thing is is blown up, and that that creates a really really difficult environment. Generally, if you want to outsource, you want to outsource with simple tasks, um, a clearly defined set of tasks that are quite um, uh, narrow in terms of their scope. Okay, and you need to set people up to succeed. You need to give them very clear instructions. You need to allow sufficient onboarding time, you need to give you yourself, your business, and then this new person enough sort of warm up time to get to know each other, get to know each other's, um, you know, communication norms and things like that. And just not expect a unicorn to rocket up to the moon in the first half an hour of these people starting kind of thing. Because uh, yeah. otherwise, it, it will be a bit of a, a rough landing. Um, yeah. But often, you know, when people first start hiring for the first time, actually a lot of the learning is on the side of the client. What does hiring mean? How do you engage an employee? How do you engage this stuff? Uh, and then just to sorry, belabor this point, um, people often outsource their problems. So they've done this startup, they've got this great product, they can't make any sales though. You know, and then they're like, oh my God, oh. I'll get someone in the Philippines to do it for two bucks an hour. And if they can't do it, they're a failure, you know, right. and, and oh, so they wow. often outsource the difficult stuff. And then they're like, well, these people are crap. They couldn't make one sale. Mm -hmm. I gave them all the products and all this sort of stuff. And that is a, a sort of process that is destined to fail. Give these people or, or your first employees the processes that have been proven and are clear and easy to do. Get those off your plate. And then as the founder or, you know, early stage business owners, you have to be the architect of those new processes. You have to prove them yourself and then mm -hmm. you hand those off to yeah. team members once they are proven. I, I never even thought about that. You know, I, I see that breakdown a lot in, in entrepreneurs is that they hate sales. They don't want to do the sales part. And so, you know, they, they get a few under their belt and they immediately try to push sales off to somebody else. And they wonder why no money's coming in the business. Um, and I never, I never thought for a second that people would try outsourcing an entire sales team. <laughs> Just, I, I they do, you know, because, never crossed my because mind. you know, one, one of the older sort of co concepts of outsourcing are, are call centers and, and telesales, you know, like just get on the phone and bang out a hundred phone calls and make a sale. And, you know, and then they go, oh my God, I've got a better idea. I'm just going to pay them commission only. And I'll pay them an amazing commission, but they've just got to make the sales. So that's really easy. But actually, you know, if that founder sat down and did it themselves, it is brutally, brutally hard. Um, you know, and it's just having that compassion and reality about what they are setting people up to do. Because then no one wins, you know. Um, so it's just about starting with simple tasks that have already been proven that can scale. So as as you go into working with a new client, do you help them onboard the the uh, the uh, outsourcers with standard operating procedures that you guys help to create, or is that something the entrepreneurs should really work on themselves within their own company? Yeah, it depends. So you know, just to clarify what we do. We are a marketplace. We're a little bit like Booking dot com for the outsourcing industry. So we list about two and a half thousand outsourcing firms globally. 
so, you know, we don't do a lot of the outsourcing. On top of that, we do also have an incubator. You know, we've got about 250 client staff um, that, you know, we work with clients so that we can showcase best in class outsourcing and things like that. Uh, and then with those clients, you know, we have the full gambit. We have US med tech publicly listed companies that are worth billions. Uh, and then we have solopreneurs and founders that are just getting started. And of course, their requirements and the journey of those people or those departments are completely different depending on the needs. Um, we can come in, we can help build out all of the processes, all the KPIs, metrics, teams, um, but then also we can just provide, it's almost like a sort of we work on steroids model where we provide the you know A-class facilities or the computing hardware, the legal employment, the payroll compliance, and then the recruitment for the specific staffing. And then once the staff are placed, then, you know, just like your staff at home, you, you, you treat them uh, as your staff and you're away. Uh, so, so there's a number of different models that we can certainly help with. Yeah. It sounds, uh, it sounds pretty deep dude, and, and, and very involved. So carrying on Derek, what are some like misconceptions that business owners have about outsourcing and, um, you know, wanting to use real employees in a real office. What are some myths that you can dispel for us about that? Um, look, it's it's infinitely similar to employment, to, to standard employment in your standard hometown. Yet it is infinitely different. And it's infinitely different because of the cultural nuances. And, you know, it's slightly different to work with people remotely versus in your own office. Um, and it's like learning a new language, even though, you know, everyone's speaking English and stuff like that. Right. Um, and th there is this um, perception that, you know, outsourcing is, is frustrating. People are all crap and stuff like that. Um, <laughs> honestly, to a degree, that that is accurate and it can be right. But hmm. people look as at, you know, the Philippines or India as a one-dimensional society. Right. The, the reality is that the Philippines is, you know, I'll speak to the Philippines, but it also applies to most of the emerging markets. The Philippines is an emerging market. You know, some say it's a third world economy. Um, the vast majority of Filipinos have, um, you know, low levels of education. Um, and, um, you know, employment uh, salaries are very, 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 very low. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I can, I can get you a team of 100 staff for $1 an hour, okay? And that would, you know, arguably not be unethical. And those people would love the work. Um, but they would not be able to contribute to your business. But if you want 100 people at a dollar an hour, no problem, you know? And the world has about 4 billion people that are probably over the moon to work for that you know, sitting at a computer in a safe, warm environment, because for 4 billion people in the world, the world is a brutal, harsh place where they can't afford to feed themselves. So, but in a business, it's not about getting the cheapest person possible. Right. You want this intersection of value and capability. Okay. And that mm. is different. And people come to the Philippines, you know, virtually with the mindset of, I'm, you know, I'm going to pay the cheapest possible. 
And then, you know, they're around, not at a dollar an hour, but they're pushing around two bucks an hour. And then they're like, ah, oh, these people are crap. And, you know, they're not professional. And, and it's like, what do you expect? This is a different environment, okay? Education is a lot different. And so my sort of counter argument is come to the Philippines, do not go cheap, okay? Pay as much as you can for a reasonable service. Mm -hmm. You should try to aim to save about 60 to 70% of costs, which is phenomenal, okay? Uh, you know, especially if you're looking at a US $100,000 salary, if you can save 60 to 70%, that's amazing. Be happy with that. Don't try and save 80%, 85%, mm -hmm. 90%, because you can, but then you get enormously frustrated. Um, and, you know, to top that point as well, the Philippines is an emerging market. There's a lot of undereducated people here, but also there are highly, highly capable here, people here. Right. There are, um, you know, Harvard graduates. Mm -hmm. There are Stanford graduates. There is Google here, Facebook here, Procter & Gamble. Um, oh, wow. You know, JP Morgan, um, all of the major companies, uh, Coca-Cola, all of the major companies have um, major, major offices here. And of course, there are executives, programmers, developers here that, that run those things. There are MBAs here. So, you know, there are rocket scientists here. You can get all of those here, but they're not going to be $2 an hour. Right. They're going to be more expensive. But if you can tap into the high quality offshore staff, then that is where, you know, you, you get the most significant advantage. And also, you know, just to finish this point, I won't go on, but if, you know, if you get a VA mm -hmm. and you're saving $4 an hour, congratulations, you know, you've done well, that's great. But if you, you know, are looking to replace your CFO and in Silicon Valley, they are 400,000 and you can get one for 100,000 in the Philippines, mm -hmm. you have saved $300,000 right. on one roll. That is the winning formula, not saving two bucks an hour, getting someone to scrape around doing a little bit of research on Upwork, you know, mm -hmm. um, on whatever. So um, it's sort of thinking the big picture and not just coming to the Philippines for the, for the bottom of the market, if that right. makes sense. Well, I think a lot of that has to do with ignorance as well, though, because like I know a little bit about outsourcing. I know a little bit about the Philippines and the culture and everything there, but like you have... Uh, you've provided even more insight today. You know, you've opened my eyes even more. So I think um, a lot of the stigma around outsourcing can be it can be put down to ignorance that that business owners just don't know um, about the, the the level of quality that's available uh, overseas. Now, how do you ensure when you're looking for an outsourcer? How do you ensure that you're working with a reputable company that's uh, that's going to take care of you and that's going to take care of the outsourcer? How do you, how do you make sure of that? Yeah, look, um, you you have to do your due diligence. Um, there are good suppliers and bad suppliers. Generally, I would say, you know, when, when you go to a foreign country and it's a third world, then the assumption is that everyone is out to rip you off. In my experience of the industry, no one is malevolent. Of course, there are some people, but the vast majority are just trying to, you know, run a good business. Um, now, there is the difference of capability and competence Mm -hmm. I would suggest that you should shoot for a BPO with at least 
500 to 1,000 staff because then they have a little bit of a you know, track record. Um, right, right. You want to look into the types of clients they have, whether there's sort of alignment to your requirements. As I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of different types of outsourcing. Mm-hmm. You know, so if they're predominantly a call center doing call center work, and you want an accountant and an architect, then that isn't so right, corresponding. Right. Um, so, you know, there's a few things. We, as I said, you know, we run a marketplace. We list two and a half thousand BPOs. Um, we have a directory where you can browse them all. We also, on February 15th, we're launching a, a global uh, system to rank all of the BPOs from number one to 2,500. Oh, wow. um, so you can check that out as well. But, you know, the the big outsourcing firms they have you know like if they're if you're under two hundred thousand people staff they would laugh at you you know um, so the big the big firms they have you know two hundred thousand up to seven hundred thousand oh, know, wow. it's just sub a million staff um, and if you are a small business they won't even pick up the phone, you know, don't even bother. And they're not the right partner for you. They don't want to talk to partners unless you're going to start with about a hundred staff and ideally go up to about 500 staff with them. So, you know, it's not about going to the top shelf. It's about finding the right kind of firm um, for your needs. Yeah, that that makes sense. Again, I mean, yeah, I'm just ignorant of this, but I never thought that, you know, there could be a a placement firm that specializes in architects and a placement that specializes in receptionists and all all stuff you never think of. So uh, thank you very much for the insight. Now, um, I do want to chat with you for just a second about your book because you are uh, the author of a a best-selling book called Inside Outsourcing. Tell me what the process was like for for writing the book and uh, how it's changed your career and the way people perceive you since the book was released. Yeah, um, the process was brutal, actually. Like, I, <laughs> I I don't like writing, but I've always written a little bit. And, you know, of course, you've got to do the copywriting on all the websites. And I've always found myself writing. Um, but, you know, and then I just felt that this book had to be written. Um, and it's really about, so the, the broader movement, you know, we talk about outsourcing, but the broader thesis here is global employment. And the concept of, you know, 20 years ago, you could only hire in your hometown. And 20 years from now, it will be the default to hire people globally based on their capabilities and cost, not on the location. Okay. And this is a huge seismic sort of shift. And that is all being brought about by uh, technology, by globalization, by this move towards remote work and things like that. And so I felt that that message had to come out. Uh, And, you know, the outsourcing industry has been around 20 or 30 years and they are really the current facilitators of this global employment, but it's not necessarily going to stop there. So writing it was, you know, it took about four years on and off. Of course, I, you know, still had, this business, my proper right. full-time job. Um, and so, yeah, four years, four years on and off, there was a massive push towards the end, which was about 10 months, you know, like using every spare minute, every spare hour. Right. Uh, and it was pretty brutal, yeah. Um, self-published, so, you know, I had a sort of editor that assisted in terms of um, some corrections, but in terms of the structure of the book, it was 
um, a lot of me doing it. Unfortunately, I, I never found a way to effectively scale that job. Um, but yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm glad it's behind me. It, it was very much a labor of love, right. um, but it is, it's been received well by the market. Uh, and it, I think it does change people's perception of you once you have written a book. And when I say people's, you know, almost like the internet, like you, you, yeah. you do get a little bit more gravitas as soon as there's a, a proper book behind your name. I think I shall have to finish mine so I can just uh, get some of that gravitas too. Uh, I keep starting it. Do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah they're big. You know, like, like any project, you think it'll be, oh, yeah, I'll get this done. But gosh, by the time you get towards the end, the, the to-do list just gets bigger and bigger. Yeah. And it's, 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 it's brutal. Yeah, well, it's, it's, some, it's on my to-do list, but uh, hopefully we'll get to it at some point later this year. Um, all right, Derek, as we move towards the end of the interview, mate, uh, number one, it's, it's been an absolute blast interviewing you. Uh, so thank you for coming, hanging out. But uh, I've got a couple of questions that I ask all my guests. and I'm, I'm going to pose one to you right now. Um, like we talked about off the air, the, the small business surgeon, you know, it's, it's aimed at guys that are a few years behind us in business, maybe, maybe five or maybe 10, just as, as the case may be. And uh, if you could go back to, to 10 years ago and, and give Derek a, a piece of advice from now, what's one of the things that you'd, uh, that you'd tell him? Uh, yeah, look, um, believe in yourself. You know, like, I, I think entrepreneurship, like you've really got to keep believing in yourself when you're, when you're going through the, the roller coaster. Um, but also there's, there's no shortcuts. Like I haven't found one yet. You know, mm. it takes a lot of grind and you know, unfortunately, there's sort of survivorship bias of you hear people in the news that have a billion dollar company after two weeks of work. And, you know, they are <laughs> the vast minority, mm -hmm. the vast majority of people are lucky to get out alive from businesses. So if you have a successful thriving business, um, you are one of the lucky ones. Business is brutally hard. It's also incredibly rewarding. But there's no shortcuts. You've just got to do the work and outperform everyone else that's trying to eat your lunch. Thank you for, for keeping it so real there. Um, yeah, a lot of people fantasize about what we do and, and, you know, they see the highlight reel on the internet, but you just, you just laid it out bare there, man. It's, it's a grind. So thank you very much for sharing that. Derek, as we wrap up the podcast today, man, uh, for those listeners that have enjoyed it, where can they get your book and uh, where can they find you online? Yeah, absolutely. The book, uh, just Google Inside Outsourcing. It's available on Amazon. We've got an Audible one as well. Uh, it's available on most uh, whatever um, places, but Amazon. Mm -hmm. And um, the directory is outsourceaccelerator.com. Uh, just go and check it out. You can get quotes. Uh, it's all free from the you know, user side, uh, you can browse, you can get quotes and, and start your outsourcing journey, just just basically explore and then book calls with outsourcing firms to to see how they can help you on your journey. Oh, man. Well, that looks great. And that's what outsourceaccelerator.com. Yeah, correct. Yeah. I'll, I'll be sure. There. I'll be sure, Derek, and put that in the show notes. Thank you so much for being a guest today, Derek. I really appreciate you coming on here and, uh, and sharing the value with the listeners. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, it's been great.
Guys, that was Derek Gallimore. Uh, you'll please go show him some love over at outsourceaccelerator.com. He is an encyclopedia on all things outsourcing. And as always, guys, if you've enjoyed the show, do me a favor, leave us a review, leave us a like, leave us a share. You can find us all over social media at Small Business Surgeon. I uh, really appreciate you guys. And once again, Derek, thank you for coming on the show, sir. Uh, guys, we'll see you all on Friday. Be good and stay safe. This has been the Small Business Surgeon Podcast. If you've made it this far, you clearly like it. So go on iTunes and leave us a five-star review. This helps people find the show and spread the good word. Share with friends and follow us at Small Business Surgeon on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you for your follow-up next week.